Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Amira Benison joins the show for a conversation about the previous Almoravid Empire's hegemony in the Mediterranean basin. Dr. Benison is a professor in the history and culture of the Maghrib in the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Cambridge, based in the UK. She has written many publications over her career, including authoring these two books as examples. The Almoravid and Almohad Empires, which was published by Edinburgh University Press, and The Great Caliphs, The Golden Age of the Abbasid Empire, which was published by Ivy Taurus. And Professor Benison joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Amira. Hello, Andrew. Great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation about one of my favorite dynasties, the Almoravids. Um, yeah, they're really interesting in many different ways. And I'm sure your questions are going to really bring to the fore some of the um, more intriguing aspects of this dynasty from the 11th century. I'm looking forward to the conversation with you very much as well, Amira. So let's start with um, a broad and overview type question to create sufficient background and context for the conversation, and then we can work our way into the details. What was the Almoravid Empire? That's a simple question, but it's quite complicated to answer. Like um, many North African empires, the Almoravid Empire actually began as a tribal religious movement in the northern Sahara, so a region covered today by places like um, Senegal, Mali, southern Morocco. And the Almoravid tribes moved through this area as camel nomads. Um, they were united under the leadership of a religious figure called Ibn Yassin, who began to teach them uh, a certain brand of Islam, which kind of enabled them to coalesce as a larger and larger group, and then move out of the desert and slowly but surely conquer a number of cities in what's now Morocco, Algeria, and ultimately the Iberian Peninsula. So they go from being a community of Saharan nomads to being the masters of a Mediterranean empire in a space of about 50 years. When you've researched their origins, do you consider their original tribe to be Amazir? They are, they would today, I think, be called Amazir, uh, which is the modern term that the indigenous people of North Africa prefer to the term Berber, which was kind of imposed on them by Arabic speakers. Um, the, probably the group that it's best to think of them as being um, uh, related to are uh, the Tuaregs. So they are indigenous to North Africa. They did probably speak one of the Berber languages. Um, they are from the, a group called in the medieval period um, Sanhaja. Uh, and so, yes, one could call them Berber or Amazigh, but that didn't really exist as a, as a single people in the time that we're actually talking about. So, can you speak about um, what, what, time, what time period um, did they um, 
were they in, 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 uh, in did they range just um, from from what 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 year to what year is it is it known and then we'll we'll kind of work our way more into the details in that in that in that uh, range yeah sure um it's difficult to give a firm starting point but let's say mid 11th century if we think about this as all getting going in probably in the 1040s and then they were overthrown by uh, the Almohads uh, in the 1140s, over an extended period, in fact, uh, which culminated with the fall of Marrakesh in um, 1147. Okay, okay. So what are the circumstances around um, how they came to, to uh, reign? And... And as part of your response, can you also share um, in this in this area um, who who would have what what um, regime would have been uh, ruling at that part of time, or possibly more more than one state um, could have could have obviously been been reigning. Yeah. Um... North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula in the early 11th century uh, were actually uh, ruled by a number of different groups. Uh, it was a period of political fragmentation, and one of the things the Almoravids do is actually unite a large area under one imperial regime after a period where uh, it's been much more politically fragmented. So if we just kind of quickly zip across the region um, north of the Sahara in what's now Morocco and Algeria, a number of different tribal chiefs, uh, many of whom are from the Zanata people, controlled the main towns, uh, places like Sijilmasa, Agma, north of the Atlas Mountains, the city of Fez, um, Ceuta on the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, once you get to the Straits of Gibraltar and into the Iberian Peninsula, there are a number of rulers who control the town or towns who are collectively called the Ta'ifa uh, kings. Uh, in Arabic, Ta'ifa means uh, a political party or a faction. So you have this idea of a, a, a fragmented landscape with lots of different individuals in control of relatively small territories. Um, and this was one of the political problems of the period, particularly in the Iberian Peninsula, what's now Spain and Portugal, because these small kingdoms were often at loggerheads with each other, which uh, facilitated the push of Christian kingdoms in the far north, southwards. So Muslims were losing territory as a result of that. Uh, most famously, uh, the city of Toledo, which fell to the Castilians in 1085, which was one of the things that in fact triggered um, the northward movement of the Almoravids into the Iberian Peninsula and um, the construction of their empire there. Okay. Um, can you describe then, um, so what's, so uh, can you describe the, the geographic de demarcation of of their of their state then at, at its at its height what would that have been if if you're to describe it on a map and obviously perfectly fine to use um modern day if if, if modern day um you know uh terminology if helpful for for those uh listening yeah 
I mean, there were the southern portions of the Almoravid Empire, which we don't know very much about, which would have been in sort of Senegal and Mali. Uh, they then controlled the Sahara north of that, in a, if you like, if you are looking at the map, in a sort of a, a long strip up, up through Morocco, western Algeria, across the Straits of Gibraltar, the southern half of the Iberian Peninsula, but in a kind of diagonal line, sort of moving up towards um, the Ebro Valley, where you have the city of um, Zaragoza, and they also had a, a presence in some of the Mediterranean islands, you know, some popular holiday destinations like Menorca and Mallorca and Ibiza also had um, or were under Almoravid control at the height of the empire. But it has to be said for not very long. Can you share what the geopolitical environment would have been like, perhaps starting with the Iberian Peninsula, more to the south, where you had said that this empire had hegemony in the period of time that we're speaking about. Doctors Brian Catlos and Alejandro Garcia San Juan have been on the show in the past. The show has covered the Emirate of Cordoba at least a couple times. And the show hasn't covered the Caliphate of Cordoba yet, but it, but it will be soon. And my understanding is the the Emirate of Cordoba evolves into the Caliphate of Cordoba. The Caliphate of Cordoba ceases to exist in the 11th century. You mentioned that the Almoravid dynasty comes into existence in the 11th century. So can you share what the geopolitical environment would have been like in Al-Andalus, so more the Muslim-centric part of the Iberian Peninsula, in this period of time that allowed their dynasty to come into rule? Yeah, sure. I mean, it takes me back to what I was saying about the Ta'ifa kings. Um, the Ta'ifa kings in Al-Andalus had moved into the political vacuum created by the collapse of the Umayyad Caliphate. So the Iberian Peninsula had had a phase in the 10th century of quite strong centralized rule from the capital Cordoba. But in the early 11th century, that unraveled for a number of different reasons due to the succession of miners, the takeover of power by um, a lineage of regions, increased pressure from the Christians of the North. And that had all contributed to the collapse of the Umayyad regime and its replacement by these Ta'ifa kings. And many of the Ta'ifa kings had actually served the Umayyads in one capacity or another. So we find some Ta'ifa kings were actually of um, so-called Slavic origin, and they'd been um, slave soldiers for the Umayyads. Uh, or they were from North Africa, um, at, at tribal who had brought men over to fight for the Umayyads. In some cases, they were members of the religious elite of town. Um, the Abadid kings of Seville, for instance, uh, came from a family of judges. Uh, so the Saifa kings are people of consequence who come from the existing political, military, or religious elite who 
take power in the vacuum created by the demise of the Umayyads. The problem is that although <laughs> it's the ongoing question of whether central or decentralized government is better, you know, in some way you could say that the Tarifa era was better for culture, it was better for local communities whose rulers were perhaps more local, accessible, responsive. But the problem was it was very disunited in the face of a political threat from the Christian North. Um, and it was this, this that encouraged not just part of the kings, but in fact, religious scholars in the Iberian Peninsula to start looking around desperately for a Muslim power that could actually um, help them push back against the Castilians, the Aragonese, and so on. And that's why they began to look south for this rising power in North Africa, the Alborovid Empire, which had an amazing leader at that time, Yusuf bin Tashfin. I mean, he's such a towering figure. You know, he started his life as a as a nomad and then went on to be instrumental in the development of Marrakesh, the conquest of what's now Morocco, uh, and then the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula as well. And he lived, he's supposed to have lived for a lunar century, so he had a lot of time in which to achieve this. But he's still very impressive, and um, it was his reputation, in a sense, that encouraged people in the Iberian Peninsula, in Al-Andalus, in a period of political fragmentation and external threat, to look to the Almoravids in the south for help. Did the uh, did this did the empire have a uh, a capital? Um, do you consider them to have a capital or or a principal place and where that uh, where that would have been? Yes, it did. Um, I mean, there was completely. I mean, there's a tendency to think about the Almoravids in terms of Al-Andalus because that's the, the big historical focus point. But if we're looking at them from the North African perspective, there are many much more important things about the construction of their empire, um, Islamization of the peoples of the Sahara, who had perhaps had contact with Islam and may have converted, but have, may have not known that much about what that entails, um, but also the urbanization of the area. Um, the Almoravids captured a number of important trading towns, but they also founded Marrakesh. We wouldn't have Marrakesh without the Almoravids. So they also begin the urbanization of the Moroccan South and the creation of this large, significant cosmopolitan trading city just north of the high Atlas Mountains, but connected to southern points and to the Trans-Saharan trade and to cities south of the Sahara. So there's a really important Saharan-African dimension to this, as well as the, the Mediterranean aspect. How would you describe their type of government? Was it a monarchy or something else? Oh. <laughs> Funnily enough, I've just been thinking and writing <laughs> about that. Um, it's really interesting. I, I mean, the, the, the types of rule that evolved in the medieval Islamic 
world has been described as a kind of near eastern form of kingship um, that was sort of Islamized to sort of take into consideration the rise of Islam. Um, and the initial, initial sort of universal political form for the Islamic community was what we call the caliphate. Now, the thing about being a caliph is that it's it, it, a universal position. There should theoretically only be one in the entire Islamic world. And it's religio-political in the sense that the caliph is expected to be the, the political military commander of the community, the emir. He's also expected to be the religious leader, the imam. And sort of his, the entire package is that he is the caliph, the Khalifa, which may be interpreted in a number of different ways in juridical texts, the most important of which are the idea that he is the caliph is either successor to the prophet and sort of standing in the prophet's shoes in every aspect except that prophecy, or that um, the caliph is actually God's representative on earth. And there are Quranic precedents for figures who might be considered in that role, such as Adam or David. So that's sort of the framework in which all Muslim regimes operated. But by the 11th century, um, there were three rival caliphs, and none of them actually had that much power. So the question then arises, who is holding power in the Muslim world? And Therefore, jurists developed this idea of what we might call delegation of powers from a caliph to other rulers uh, who held power. And power in Arabic is sultan, which of course will probably be familiar to everyone as the word sultan. So you get the introduction of a more pluralistic political system where many people could hold power theoretically delegated from a caliph somewhere who may or may not have power himself. And that's where, and that's how the Almoravids develop their own position. By the time they come to power, the Umayyad Caliphate in the West has disappeared. So the most sensible caliphate for them to look to is actually the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad. And there are a number of um, letters which have been preserved um, between eminent figures in the, at the Almoravid court and Baghdad, sort of getting the caliph in Baghdad to um, acknowledge the Almoravid Amir Yusuf bin Tashfin as his new tenant in the West. So the government they create is it, it's not a caliphate, it, but it's an empire um, headed by someone called an Amir a word which can mean prince or commander, who is technically acting on behalf of the Abbasids in Baghdad, but in reality, entirely independent. Interesting. Yeah. What, um, what was their um, religious state policies, if known? And what was their tolerance to other religions if inhabitants within their uh, state uh, would have been practicing a different um, re religion than, than, um, than the state religion? 
Um, but that's a kind of a nuance that has often got lost over time in discussions of this period. So this this period itself, um, because a lot of their reign, it sounds like, was in the Mag Maghrib region. And then, of course, we're talking also a lot about um, the uh, the Iberian Peninsula. What 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 are the main um, sources that scholars rely on for information about this period as it pertains to the Al Almoravid dynasty? This is actually one of the problems that we all face when we're working on the Almoravid. Uh, very few sources survive from the period, and we don't have uh, a good set of historical chronicles written by authors writing for the Almoravids, which would give us the kind of the, the pro picture. What we tend to have instead is quite a lot of material generated by their successors, the, the Almohads, uh, who also came from North Africa and might also be uh, labeled as Berber or Amazigh, but who were very different to the Almoravids and very hostile to their religious practices, their cultural practices, and their general way of running an empire. So we tend to have to sift through this sort of litany of criticisms to try and see what might actually have been going on at the time. So it is quite difficult to know what the Almoravid period was really like. I mean, there are a couple of historians like Ibn Ibari or Ibn Khaldun who wrote uh, more comprehensive histories of North Africa later, and they have incorporated quite a lot of material from the Almoravid period alongside the sort of later critiques. So we have something to go on. There's also a certain amount of evidence in the medieval Christian archives of the crowns of Castile or Aragon, County of Barcelona, and things like that, where um, some documentary evidence like. Um, letter exchanges in Arabic and Latin have been found and um, partly analysed. Um, and then there's, a, there's, another, there's another source, set of sources that uh, are beginning to be used, that can be used more, which are um, biographical dictionaries, often written later, but which nonetheless contain these sort of little snapshot biographies of people who were considered um, noteworthy at the time so a kind of medieval who who who, who compilation of of some kind so we have quite a lot of material but we don't have what it would be really wonderful to have like some complete Amoravid chronicles which just present the story as the um and the uh, empire as the Amoravids themselves saw it i find these topics though very very fascinating when when all the information isn't necessarily there, it's it makes more for a for a puzzle. And I find, yeah, I, I, I find, yeah, I find these conversations very interesting. And then you get into, you know, you're looking at sources, and then you're then you also if this if if it's not if it's not necessarily them writing writing at that given time, then you're questioning the you know the level of biasness that might have existed too, right? With, with the uh, with the various writers over time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, that's when it's kind of nice to have the pro and the anti, but you can put them next to each other and try mm. and kind of mm. see what was really going on. I mean, 
speaking on the sort of the anti-Almoravid line, I mean, one thing that's very interesting in a lot of the Almohad era chronicles, like the chronicle of um, Almorakushi or Ibn al-Qatan, is a really like vitriolic criticism of the Almoravids. It's something that we might actually think was a positive, and that's the um, the role of women. So uh, Almoravid women. Um, as in many tribal societies, had actually quite a lot of power and autonomy. And several sort of scholars of anthropology and in the medieval Maghreb have also pointed out that you know, one of the features of the indigenous tribal society there does seem to be a certain amount of matrilineality. So, you know, succession or inheritance from uh, a female, not a male line. So among the Sanhaja, who produced the uh, Almoravid movement, uh, the norm was sister's son inheritance. And even though that changed and the ruling dynasty became perhaps more conventionally Islamic and rule passed from a father to a designated son, all the way through the Almohad era, sorry, the Almoravid era, there is this emphasis on the public role of women and their presence in public space and doing things, saying things, uh, which is really quite unusual in medieval Arabic chronicles. So it's worth noting uh, as as a very particular feature coming out of the Almoravid nomadic tribal background. How uh, ubiquitous would that have been in the... um in this empire, Amira, um, the the bequeathing um, via the the female line of a of, of a family, and why why do you think that um, that occurred with this with this particular uh, state? I mean, I, I think it it occurs in among the tribe at the start of the empire. It's difficult to know the extent to which it actually continues. I mean, the the idea of sister-son inheritance is based on, well, both a a sense that women can be prestigious, obviously, but also a sense that uh, um, tribal women in these contexts would seem to have been able to divorce, remarry, you know, have relationships in a way that was highly unusual in urban Islamic society. So I suppose, you know, to put it bluntly, a man couldn't be sure his children were his own, but he knows he's got the same mother as his sister, and he knows his sister is the mother of his nephew. So if you're concerned about property being kept within a particular bloodline, it's kind of more secure (laughs) that your nephew inherits so, but I don't think that necessarily continues um, even among the Almoravids. So, I mean, it's very difficult to tell, and there are a lot of references to uncles in the sources of this period, which again is is not entirely unusual, but it's a little bit unusual. Um, but I think what it does do is it just means that among the ruling. Almoravid elite, which is a relatively small politico-military elite, the, the 
tribal connections remain really strong and women are a critical part of those tribal connections. I mean, many Alorovic princes were distinguished by the names of their mothers. I mean, we have a, a whole lineage who end up um, controlling um, Majorca and Minorca after the Almoravid fall called the Banu Hraniya. Hraniya is a woman. Um, and there are numerous examples of this, you know, a commander called Ibn Aisha, for instance, or, and another, a son of Yusuf bin Tashfin being known as, um, again, as the son of his mother. So this referencing of women is, um, is a very unusual thing. But it's, um, it occurs throughout the Almoravid period that women are sort of politically, genealogically present when they're often absent from um, the, the written texts coming from other periods. Interesting. How, um, how centralized would you describe their, their, their government? You mentioned um, tribes a few times in some of your responses. Um, they had quite a bit of land, relatively speaking. Um, was it, uh, when it comes to, let's say, administration or co coordination, let's say from Al Andalus, you mentioned their capital, it sounds like was in um, the, the Maghreb, so, so in northern, using modern day terminology, northern Africa. Um, modern day terminology, um, Morocco, right? Um, yeah. So, so how, so how would you tackle that? How, how centralized would you say their government was and their level of court, uh, like coordination administ administratively? Was it, was it, um, was it quite a, um, a decentralized government with these various tribes or was it more, more centralized and, you know, the decision somehow was still being made from a central source? assess, I mean, one of the things I tend to say to my students is so we all need to remember that all pre-modern government is minimal. It's nothing like the kind of <laughs> intrusive face-to-face -face government we, we experience today. So even the most centralized pre-modern regimes were what we would consider very light-touch government. I mean, most individuals had no contact with government, their communal representatives would have done. Um, but within the sort of broader range of medieval Islamic government, um, the Almoravids were probably a fairly uh, devolved regime. Uh, Marrakesh was their capital. Um, Seville was sort of their provincial capital in the Iberian Peninsula. They had a, not a few other major centers. They appointed governors. I mean, most of the medieval Islamic world was um, conceptualized as towns with their hinterland. Uh, and a town with that hinterland would have a governor. And sometimes a number of different governorates were amalgamated into a bigger sort of regional Thing, like the Almoravids would have had a sort of a chief, a chief uh, delegate within the Iberian Peninsula 
as a whole, in addition to governors of cities like Sevilla or Cordoba or Granada and Maria um, and so on. Um, they were they were assisted in governing those areas uh, by garrisons of troops, um, which included Almoravid warriors, but also other groups who were incorporated into the military from uh, among the Andalusi population. Uh, they also recruited a certain number of Christian mercenary troops uh, from sub-Saharan Africans. So it's quite a mixed army uh, in these different garrisons. Um, I've already mentioned the fact they worked with um, Maliki religious scholars who provided a kind of religious legal framework. And um, one of the sort of recent findings about the Almoravid Empire is how Maliki law uh, actually created a kind of um, imperial legal framework for their empire. So that there were, there were kind of legal opinions which would be circulated through the empire and, and applied in a similar way in many different locations, probably for the first time. Um, and they also they also worked with the existing Arabic literate secretarial class, and those people would prepare correspondence, which went backwards and forwards. I mean, there were numerous examples of letters being sent quite quickly backwards and forwards between Marrakesh, Seville, other cities. Uh, important missives would be uh, double, triple, etc. copied, sent out to every different major city where they would be recopied and sent out further. So there is an administrative framework there. And I mean, when the city of Fez fell to the Almohan in the 1140s, for instance, it was actually betrayed by someone called um, Al-Hayani, who came from Hayen in Spain. And he was working for the Almoravids as the financial administrator of Fez. So we know that there is also this kind of financial tax official kind of layer of people who are scattered across the empire. For North Africa, the Almoravid era is probably one of the first moments where there is some kind of uh, a broader administrative framework from an imperial center, Marrakesh. Um, in the Iberian Peninsula, these things had already existed, uh, and the Almoravids were able to make use of an existing administrative system. So I suppose sort of midway in terms of mm -hmm. how centralized mm -hmm. or decentralized. Um, it's not as bureaucratic as the Almohad Empire that comes afterwards, but certainly in terms of North Africa, it's a much more organized, centralized kind of system than anything that had preceded. Yeah, it's not an easy uh, question to, to, to tackle. So thank you for expanding on that, Amira. Did they produce any um, coinage? So did they did they mint any uh, state currency? Such a good question. They had the most beautiful gold coins, mm. <laughs> which were modeled on Eastern Islamic coinage. Um, and their gold coins um, were, I mean, they they produced an awful lot. They produced many more gold coins, really, than their predecessors or successors, partly because they had access to West African gold. 
and their coins were actually named after them. Uh, their name in Arabic is Al-Murabitu. So you have Al-Murabitin, which are these coins which circulated around the entire Mediterranean for quite some time, and they were kind of the dollar or the gold standard of the time. So their currency is very strong, uh, in fact, and they do mint coins. And I want to make sure um, uh, that we cover this. I don't. I don't uh, think we covered it er earlier. Um, my apologies if we if we if we had the Almoravid, the actual uh, term itself. Can you go over what the origins of that term is? Yeah, the the origins of the term. Um, I mean, Almoravid is the Spanish form of Almoravidun. And Al-Murabitun literally means men of the robot. Um, the puzzle is, what does robot mean? Um, and there's two different ways of looking at it. The Arabic word robot can mean a kind of girding and preparing oneself for war or jihad. So it has this sense of military preparedness, spiritual focus for a higher purpose. But there are also a number of institutions in North Africa which were called robots, so places rather than a concept. And these robots were sometimes outposts, defensive outposts. Sometimes they were teaching centers. It seems that generally um, the men who gathered in them did feel that whether they were teaching or defending the frontier, they were doing it as a religious purpose. Um, robots have sometimes been compared to monasteries, but they're really not like monasteries because there's no sense that you go in there and sign up to an order and have to stay there. It, it's much more fluid and flexible than that. And in the area where the Almoravid movement actually um, emerged, there seemed to be a number of these robots, which were basically rural teaching centers. Um, and the teachers in them seem to have been promoting um, the Merliki School of Law and a kind of basic, pious, devotional approach to Islam. And it's believed that that's where um, sort of the Almoravid form of Islam was probably generated in the robot of the south of Morocco. Um, but this is a, again, because we don't have the sources, this is quite a complicated mm. <laughs> exercise in trying to pick through myths and different stories and, and come up with um, an explanation. Another puzzle that can keep a scholar like you busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's plenty of puzzles to be out more of it. I can tell, uh, yeah, I can tell why you enjoy um, what you do so much. Um, okay, um, so let's work our way from a, a chronology perspective to the end of uh, their their hegemony. So, what happened with their um, with their state? One might argue that really conquering the Ebro Valley, where the city of Saragossa is located, and also Mallorca and Menorca, was actually an overextension which um, was not to the benefit of the Almoravids. Uh, they began to sustain losses 
in battles with uh, the Northern Christian kings. And get the general impression that their military reserves were just really overstretched by this point. Um, they sometimes, sometimes they said, you know, they just they weren't good at sieges, but and it's true, they, they, they weren't really able to regain any town or fortress that they lost. But then you have to ask yourself why. And it's not really a matter of tactics in medieval sieges. It's actually, do you have the men and the resources to completely knock a town down until it's starved? Because once the community is starving, they're just open the gates. I mean, neither Christians nor Muslims actually bash their way through city gates. What happened was the enemy, if the besieged enemy gave up. So the Amoravists are certain who have the resources to quite do that. They always seem to be like overstretched. Um, and as they begin to lose control of the frontier, and there's this sense that the Christian power is a Christian south, then other criticisms of them begin to arise. Um, criticisms about their strange Saharan customs, criticisms about the, the latitude they allow women, accusations of oppression or criminality by members of the Almoravid elite, or if not the actual tribal emirs themselves and their servants. Um, so you begin to get all this kind of bubbling resentment and complaints about their government. But the thing that really destroys them and that really pulls the carpet out from under their feet is actually the opposition they faced in North Africa. So again, we tend to see this all from the all, you know, they began to lose support in the Iberian Peninsula. But we'll have to remember from their perspective, the Iberian Peninsula is the province. The metropole is what's now Morocco. And it was in what's now Morocco that this new rival movement developed in the high Atlas Mountains the Almohad movement, and it was the gradual increase of the support of the tribes of the south um, for that rival movement that actually um, made it impossible for the Almoravids to continue, you know, from about in the 11, for the mid-1120s up until the fall of Marrakesh in 1147, they were just constantly being harried and attacked by Almohad, either in pitched battles or guerrilla warfare, and more and more tribes just began to move over to the Almohad side and abandon the Almoravids, and it was that that eventually destroyed their empire, not, not the situation in the Iberian Peninsula. Amira, this has been a wonderful conversation today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, me too. It's been great fun. Yeah. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Benison authored, The Al-Moravid and Almohad Empires and The Great Caliphs, The Golden Age of the Abbasid Empire. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Amir and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.